Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Stripe Tap to Pay on iPhone came along and changed everything. With Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. No more juggling different methods. Just a simple tap on my iPhone and transactions are complete. What's truly remarkable is how Stripe caters to all my customers' preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Stripe ensures a smooth checkout experience every time. Setting up Stripe was a breeze, taking just minutes to get up and running. From local markets to global retailers, Stripe helped me expand my reach and grow my business with ease. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Welcome to DTNS Experiment Week. All this week, DTNS is on summer vacation, but in its place is Experiment Week, where our producers and contributors are trying out new show ideas and releasing them right here on the DTNS feed. Enjoy. Hello, all, and welcome to Ask a Luddite, a show that's part of the Daily Tech News Show Experiment Week. Excited to be bringing this. My name is Rich Straffolino. I ordinarily do Daily Tech headlines. You may see me occasionally on Daily Tech News Show itself. And Ask a Luddite started as kind of an extension of the conversations I would have with my good friend Ben Weinberg. Uh, we've been friends since college, and we've had a lot of conversations about technology over the years. I think when we started, it was, I was a lot more of a technophile, tech for its own sake, uh, very excited. Uh, you know, it was the, it was the, it was the mid 2000s. It was heady days. Stuff was happening in technology. And I always appreciated Ben's instincts to be techno cynical. Ben, would you say that's accurate? Oh, Ben Weinberg, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. In fact, I'm so cynical. I almost didn't even get an introduction there. You were just going to carry on. You would have done the whole show on your own. We would have done it in AI, and then we would have piped it in afterwards, if that had been the case. Okay. I'm I'm really just looking to eliminate all the weak spots, excluding myself at this point. Okay. Well, that would be all of humanity. (laughs) So, yeah. So, I have been – I have referred to you as a Luddite. Now, you do use technology. You're not not throwing your wooden sabot into, like, industrial machinery to stop the advancement of technology at this point, as far as we know. As far as you're comfortable disclosing, right? <laughs> that is correct. You refer to me as a Luddite as almost pejorative, and I embrace that term. It's not that I'm against technology. It's not that I'm against modernity or progress of any kind. It's that I don't see a need for technology as its own sake, as you said earlier. If it doesn't serve a need, if it's not fulfilling a void, if it doesn't do something that I can't currently do, I just don't see the need for the expense. And we have so many issues of technology that iterate in the interest of supposedly being better. And really, it's just to get you to buy another thing. (laughs) And a lot of times, new versions have bugs and they don't work. You end up having to revert. I had that issue with uh, DaVinci Resolve as a color grading program just yesterday. And so new is not automatically better. 
that is all that I've ever said. That has all, always been my position to you. And so what I eschew is this sense that, <laughs> oh, something's awesome. It's cool. It's new. Or like when the iPhone went to like, you know, squared off edges, everyone went, ooh, or they put the headphone jack on the top instead of the bottom. Ooh. And then they moved it back and everyone went, ooh. It's those kind of useless features and changes that have no functional application. That is what I issue. So if that makes me a Luddite, I happily embrace your term, sir. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of Apple, that kind of gets us into our first topic. Now, one of the big stories we've been covering on DTNS, Daily Tech Headlines, and, and kind of just been blowing up in the tech sector is Apple announcing that they are going to be uh, uh, doing client-side scanning for uh, CSAM material, child sexual uh, assault materials, I believe, or abuse materials, excuse me. Um, so pretty nasty stuff. But the way they're essentially going to be doing this is they're going to have a, a database of material from uh, uh, organizations that deal with this kind of material that try and protect against this type of material. They're going to create a series of algorithmic hashes that they are going to then scan for on device when you upload to iCloud. So it's not like automatically doing it, I guess, every second on your phone. It's when you upload it to iCloud. So it's getting into this whole idea of, you know, essentially Apple. I think the one of the issues with this on a privacy setting is, you know, this is your device and Apple is proactively scanning something that they claim is going to be end-to-end encrypted. Apple has really billed itself uh, very much recently as a privacy-centric company, as a security-focused company. Ben, I know you have a – we've already alluded to your problematic relationship uh, with with Apple as a company, as a, as a maker of products, as a maker of technology. So, Ben, seeing kind of this story and, – and we don't need to necessarily get into the, the nuts and bolts of it. We've covered that extensively on DTNS. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm curious on your perspective on this. On the one hand – Child porn is horrific and terrible. We, no one, I don't think anyone wants it in the world. Or if you, you do, then, you know, I don't you deserve like you. The I don't, yeah, faith you're, a horrible, to you. you're a horrible person. Right. Uh, but on the other hand, Apple may be going back on their privacy bona fides from the, uh, from the Luddite perspective of not tech for its own sake. Ben, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Right. So first of all, with the major caveat that if it actually advances the safety of the children, that's a legitimate issue, and if it were, if it was really doing that, that would be worth some concessions in other areas. So the question is, is it really advancing anything there? And first of all, the thing I read said that it, or maybe this is a beta feature, but it would notify the parents, you know, if uh, there was some questionable material. So, so and and uh, real quick, this, this is some of the confusion that Apple has had because they simultaneously announced like an iMessage scanning feature where they they would scan iMessage for nudes separately from this. It's kind of like a sep- two separate programs, right? Okay. So there's like a there's like a child uh, and parental uh, uh, feature set that they're introducing into iMessage to effectively proactively scan for that kind of stuff and alert parents and like put up a bunch of roadblocks for children for accessing things like nudes or, or explicit content and that kind of stuff. And then there is the, the essentially the scanning for child porn on device component of it. Both they announced them at the same time and it's caused no end of confusion and Apple has effectively apologized for that, but, but kind of somewhat of a separate issue just for clarification there. Okay. So. Also, on the photos, um, it is comparing anything to an existing database, correct? So it's not yes. even – if something were new, 
it wouldn't even be able to do that. So yes. the first question is, is this actually an advancement in child safety? And it, I, I don't know the answer to that. You're much more tech forward than I am. <laughs> um, but it seems like why not earlier? Like if they're all they're doing is comparing, they're scanning images, comparing them against existing databases, it seems like the technology necessary to do that is not novel, correct? So why is it taking till now to roll that out? And then, you know, acknowledging that this creates a backdoor into looking at people's content um, under the guise of questionable material, does that leave the door open for abuse? And then... You know, there's the cynical perspective that even a small uh, backdoor to be used in only extreme circumstances is still a backdoor. And what would they be doing behind the scenes if they wanted to get into your content or even just, you know, from the silent perspective, are they scanning everything under the guise of in case it's questionable material? But oh, by the way, to know if it is, we have to scan it anyway. And we just happen to now have all your data anyway. <laughs> well, the one of the things that's interesting about this story to me is that, you know, uh, Apple famously went to bat to not unlock a terror, you know, an iPhone belonging to a terrorist or an accomplice of a terrorist a, a few years ago. And was it was ready to go to court over this kind of principle of, hey, we're not we're not going to help you build software to break this in, the secure enclave that we've already put together. And, you know, they were headed to a nasty court battle before it got resolved by third-party security research and that kind of stuff. So Apple has shown that they are willing to go to bat for unpopular causes for the sake of privacy. And what I think this is an attempt to, the specific way that they are implementing this, is them seeing, hey, we are going to, there, there is some big tech regulation coming down the pike. We don't exactly know what it's going to look like, but if we can put a step forward and show, hey, we're not, we're not digging our heels in, we're not being entrenched, uh, and not, and refusing to do anything. Hey, we're, we're willing to take the step. Listen, we, uh, listen, you know, Apple's coming out and saying, hey, we want to get child porn off the iPhone, or we want to let you know, you know, we want to detect it if you're trying to upload it to iCloud, right? That one, no one is, uh, uh, you know, the, the defenders of, Child porn, I guess, are, are far and few between. And two, it, it kind of maybe hopefully sets the tone for them while still ostensibly keeping their privacy bona fides. Although, given the public reaction to it, I, I think that's a mixed, uh, you know, it's a mixed message for them at this point. You know, getting into the other stuff of uh, this being a backdoor, that's been the other concern. And we've even heard rumors that Apple employees themselves have kind of said, hey, if a repressive government all of a sudden says, add this to the database of stuff you're scanning to, um, you know, Apple's come out and said, listen, this is going to be audited by the, this database that we're scanning against is going to be audited by the organizations themselves. It's going to be audited by an, an independent party. Um, you know, we don't want this to be abused. We don't want this to be seen as a backdoor. This is a list of not even the list of like the image files themselves. It's a list of algorithmic hashes. Uh, that we are scanning against that we don't have visibility into until you upload it to iCloud. And, and oh, by the way, Google and Microsoft and basically every other cloud storage provider is already scanning their stuff in a very similar way. The big concern I think that a lot of people have had is that this is happening on device. Previously, something that Apple has said is completely locked, you know, is completely private, completely locked down. We don't know anything about what's on your phone by design. And that's the big, to me, the big change here is kind of moving away maybe from that messaging a little bit with this. 
Yeah, do they really not know what's going on with your phone? By design, there are all kind of permissions you have to enable, like in totally other contexts. You know, you give it permission to access your locations or you give it permission to do whatever. So, like, that data is out there. Are they not accessing it? And, you know, maybe they don't unless they have cause or they claim they are not. But, you know, let's strip this down to its most basic and cynical levels here. Apple is not hurting for money. So any of these features they roll out are not moving the needle in terms of profitability or in terms of feature sets or anything like that. As you said, if Microsoft and other similar organizations are already doing this kind of scanning, the technology obviously exists. So the, it begs the question, if they're really concerned about this issue, why weren't they doing it already? And... You know, I have to conclude that it's one of those things to avoid bad press. You know, they're doing it so they can say, oh, we care. And, you know, this is not something that could be exploited on our network. And, you know, the the middle ground of we're doing this to prevent a horrific problem seems to be at odds with the idea that, oh, we're only doing it, like, if it's necessary, or we're only doing it, like, a little bit, you know? <laughs> so, if you want to prevent the problem, you have to acknowledge that there is a backdoor. And if you don't want there to be a backdoor at all, then you have to acknowledge that you are not going to the fullest extent to prevent this problem. So, Apple seems to be trying to walk a middle ground from a PR standpoint that doesn't actually have any meaningful impact on, you know, the issue itself. So, Ben, my question is, on the Ben Weinberg Apple Rage Index, where by, I would say, nine is your usual posture. That's correct. And <laughs> ten is, is uh, un- unfailing, I guess, eternal rage. I don't know what, ten, what the escalation could possibly be. However, does this, does this change your perception of Apple? This, this kind of, this story, this, this kind of shift in privacy uh, messaging, if nothing else? At this point, I would have to say no for a few reasons. Number one, this is still a, you know, nascent feature. We don't know exactly how it's going to work. As much as I dislike Apple and their policies, it's hard to argue with the stated goal here, which is to prevent the dissemination of child pornography. It's hard to be against that. So, you know, if they really were doing that in a legitimate way, you know, that's one thing where I would compromise on some of the security features. Um, so we'll see how securely and how well this feature is rolled out. Um, and then again, like I said before, I mean, how much is this moving the needle on anything Apple does? I have a hard time believing they're not using our data against us in some way. And, you know, I, I, I'm going to just stay for the record that this feature is not one that will pertain to me. So, um, <laughs> get they, in front there, Ben. <laughs> yeah, whatever they want to do to my phone, I don't think this is going to move the needle. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I don't think I'm any more outraged by anything they're doing now than than what I w- would have already been. Um, but I do think they're doing it for cynical, selfish reasons. All right, speaking of cynic, cynic and selfish, uh, let's move on to Facebook. They announced recently Horizon work uh, Workrooms. This is basically like a VR environment for meetings. And this is kind of... 
Facebook is very bullish about this idea of a, a multiverse, uh, approach, I guess is it's internet 3.0 or 4.0 or whatever we're at at this point now. Uh, but to kind of this idea that instead of having a zoom call where you have a bunch of static video angles of everybody kind of awkwardly staring slightly away from the camera or something like that. You have this VR landscape where you can have people uh, uh, interacting in a virtual space. It it gives you a little bit more relatability. There's ways to take notes. There's ways to bring in non-VR people and stuff like that. I mean, Ben, I'm sure much like everyone else, you've been on your fair share of uh, Zoom, Skype, oh, and, yes. and, and video conferencing calls over the past year and a half or so. So does the prospect of of slapping on a VR headset and uh, and, and sitting across a, a virtual conference table, does that sound in in a world where remote work is probably going to be uh, much more prevalent or the standard? Is this a better alternative to the Zoom call? Today, I would say absolutely not. It's a weird, <laughs> uncanny valley situation. You're still in touch with the same people, saying the same things. We're not yet to the point where I can't use my hand to take notes in real life. So <laughs> virtually writing on a whiteboard in a room that's going to disappear when we close the meeting does not seem to be advantageous. Um, and what am I really getting? What either it's communication or even if it's like nonverbal cues or what sort of verisimilitude am I getting in a virtual workroom? that I wouldn't get by just looking at someone on Zoom and having a meaningful conversation. Now, admittedly, uh, that pales in comparison to being in person with someone in an actual meeting. And I, I guess I get in principle what they're trying to accomplish with virtual workrooms, um, the, the limitations of Zoom, and also just the stigma attached to ugh, another Zoom call is real. But, you know, it's so... Um, nascent at this point that it's just weird. Like the things that it doesn't get right are so salient that it's <laughs> distracting. Whereas if we just had a zoom call, I think everyone at this point signs on to zoom with the perspective that this is a zoom call. It's, it's an, a, you know, an alternative to having to meet in person when we can't. And it's not the same thing, but you know, it's, an inexpensive way for us to still communicate in something approaching real time. And so we're just going to sign on to zoom with all of that in mind. The VR workroom is just, it's just so weird. Um, like the thing I read uh, when Zuckerberg tried it, like there was an incident where like at one point, like his mouth stopped moving when he was talking of his <laughs> avatar. So he had to like exit and like enter the room again, you know, those kinds of things. Like, you know, we don't care about that on a zoom call. Like, we understand we're getting the information, that's it. And the thing is, it's trying to add, you know, either the technology isn't there yet or it's presented in such a way that makes it even more awkward, if that's possible. So, <laughs> from that standpoint, I would say a VR workroom is just even more prohibitive than a Zoom call to actually accomplishing anything. That being said... I can, I can see this as the first iteration of, you know, maybe it's 15 or 20 years from now where you join a workroom and it is uncomfortably realistic to the point where you're like in the world of like Ready Player One or one of those dystopian <laughs> novels where when you join the workroom, it is indistinguishable from real life. So as this, as a first iteration of the complete dystopia where we all just sit in a darkened closet with the goggles 24 hours a day. And then we hop from virtual room to virtual room. 
that future is probably on the horizon. And this is probably the first step to that. So I look at this as when they perfect the virtual workroom in its current form, we have gone through the looking glass and the dystopia is inevitable. But <laughs> today, I don't think it's doing anything that we can't already accomplish with, you know, Zoom rudimentary as it is. So in terms of like the the spectrum of meeting productivity, right? We have like like the hellscape of an email thread as like the bottom of the of the barrel in terms of like efficiency or desirability to be in. Then there's like the conference, like the voice only conference call over a phone line where like everyone's dialing in. No one knows what's going on. Like it, there's, there's nothing even to attach to. There's not even the resemblance of real voices. Then there's, so would you put this at, at the same level of engagement and I guess, um, uh, productivity effectiveness as a zoom call or, or with the potential possibly to be more than that at some point or, or like as it stands right now, I guess from what you've seen. As it stands right now, I would put it below the level of Zoom call okay. because those weird quirks, like, you can't ignore them, but they are a roadblock to accomplishing something. If, you know, your avatar gets up and walks across the room and just stands in the corner looking at the wall, like, <laughs> are you trying to communicate something that isn't coming through? Like, I, do, I don't know how to read into that right now. On a well, Zoom call, either it works or it doesn't, and I know where I stand. So let's assume that th- they've announced this as a beta, right? Okay. So let's assume when this hits a full release, the weird Mark Zuckerberg mouth not moving errors, like the, like the, the technical glitches are solved and you're left with still this cartoonish kind of avatar situation, but you, you, you know, you have relatively accurate hand tracking, fa- you know, uh, movement mm-hmm. tracking, that kind of stuff so that you, you, you know, so, Beyond it as a technical product, assuming everything goes well. And, you know, I, I can't imagine the, you know, if we, if we have bandwidth issues on a video call, I can't imagine if sending over, you know, VR info is what, what kind of latency and weirdness potentially could be on the, on the horizon for that. No pun intended. The, there was a pun intended. Let's not fool ourselves. Uh, the, assuming all of that, do, is that still the same or is this, is your opinion of this only based on what you've seen of the beta so far? I would still write it below the Zoom call because there are things like nonverbal cues, which you Mm -hmm. won't get, I presume. And, you know, correct me if I miss something, but like, you know, you go to write on the whiteboard in the virtual workroom. How is that better than, I mean, taking notes? Like even in a Zoom, you can like post notes to a chat or most of the programs let you attach a document if you need to. Um, And I think everyone, you know, uses Zoom in conjunction with, something else as a way to transfer, you know, your content, whether it's yeah, attaching it to an yeah. email or, you know, those workflow programs or whatever. Um, but, you know, you're still getting your content. You know, how does that work if you put notes on a virtual workroom board? What happens when the, when the meeting ends? Like, is there a record of that? Does it then email you? Like, how does all that stuff work? Well, the one thing I will say that's interesting to me is that I think one of the things that kills a zoom call, especially one that goes on for a little bit is, you know, you're all kind of stuck in the same position, staring at the same angle. And even though there's dynamic content being shared in a white, you know, virtual whiteboards or stuff like that, like physically you are kind of locked in a single position, unless you have one of those webcams that maybe can like do like that auto cropping and track you like as you move around or something like that. I, at least with the VR stuff, 
there's the possibility of like if something's drawn on the virtual whiteboard, you have to turn your head if you're not fa- if your avatar isn't facing that like or or you can track someone as they're walking around. So at least there is as weird as that it may seem as almost unnecessary as that seems given that it's a virtual environment. I feel like that having to have to physically react to a meeting other than to just stare at a screen. I mean, even though you are just staring at a screen again, it gets weird. But I think that adds something as, as someone who is, is not a fan of, of meetings of, of most kinds. <laughs> um, I, I, I could, I could understand how that might lead to me being more engaged purely the fact that I cannot just be lazy and my eyes glaze over and just kind of slump over, uh, you know, uh, during the course of a meeting. So your interest in this feature is basically (laughs) that it, it forces you to pay attention Yes, from a, from a standpoint that has nothing to do with the content itself Mm -hmm. or the fact that presumably if you're in a meeting, it is of some importance, whether it's your job or, or whatever. Um, and the thing that's getting you to stay focused has nothing to do with any of those things. No. Is this just the negative reinforcement model? <laughs> I, I mean, possibly. I, I can't, I can't say no. I can't say no, Ben. Uh, but we will, I mean, that, this is what's interesting to me because even in your, in your, this is some, a little bit worse than a Zoom call. I still see that you see the potential of this dystopian and, and Wally-esque as it may be, that there, there, there is something here that could be significantly better from a productivity standpoint, even if <laughs> if it may usher in the, the end of, of society as we know it. That's right. Now, if down the road it's less cartoonish, that I can mm-hmm. understand. Or if there's more, you know, interactive functionality, like I could see – um, you know, if there's some high level business meeting and like you could sign a contract in such a meeting, you mm-hmm. know, those kinds of things, you know, could be better than having to go back and forth over whatever, you know, secure quote unquote protocols, uh, you know, for, for legally binding stuff like that. Or if you can do more inside the room. So like, let's say you're, uh, beta testing like a physical product could, the various avatars all get together in such a room and, you know, have some sort of sensory feedback. If it's something you need to touch or hold or test physically, you know, as the technology evolves, could you do those kinds of things? In which case I could definitely see an improvement over Mm -hmm. our, you know, uh, boxes on the screen uh, scenario that we live in now. So certainly I can see that now, again, I can't end this conversation without leaving you on a cynical note. And that would be this technology will absolutely be used against us. Like they can perfect <laughs> it as a meeting and that's great. And I can see like where, why in theory that's useful and how they're working toward a world where like it does do things that zoom can't. But as you started this um, topic, you know, Facebook is ultimately looking to create the metaverse and being a, per- being, being able to perfect a virtual room of any kind with interactive you know, elements and, uh, you know, interpersonal experiences, that is probably just really a test to use other kind of virtual rooms for other kinds of meetings. Like, it's not hard to envision a scenario in which, like, it becomes the next, like, equivalent of Bitcoin. Like, two people go into a virtual room somewhere and, like, trade drugs or something. And because it's untraceable or doesn't exist in real life, 
you know, it's harder to trace them and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Or, you know, people could use it for, you know, whatever nefarious purposes they don't want to be attached to in real life. So, like, to me, the meeting portion here is small potatoes. It's like we're trying it on something simple so that we can perfect it for something bigger that we will then control for all eternity. Uh, hearing those words from your mouth, Ben, this brings me so much joy. It's, it's truly, <laughs> truly everything I could have hoped and dreamed for. The one thing that's amazing though about this is because they, I, I, this is designed acknowledging that like VR, while a viable technology that's relatively affordable, I would say, especially from a business perspective, most people don't have it yet. So you can still like just do like a basic video conference dial in to these, or to these workspaces. So there's, I, at some point, there'll be some technical glitch where the VR people can't join you. And so you're going to have one guy with the VR glasses on doing a zoom call. <laughs> just in, and yeah. that to me will, Oh, it'll just be the absolute best day uh, <laughs> on the internet, except for that person. Cause truly they've, they've jumped the shark. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com my business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments then Stripe Tap to Pay on iPhone came along and changed everything. With Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. No more juggling different methods. Just a simple tap on my iPhone and transactions are complete. What's truly remarkable is how Stripe caters to all my customers' preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Stripe ensures a smooth checkout experience every time. Setting up Stripe was a breeze, taking just minutes to get up and running. From local markets to global retailers, Stripe helped me expand my reach and grow my business with ease. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point on the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed, and Haiku is the fastest and lowest cost model in the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to keep them at the frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. Last uh, story I wanted to just get your real quick opinion on here, Ben. So uh, I don't know if you've been following the the work of the company OpenAI, but they recently came up with a, a language model called GPT-3 that is able to do some fairly remarkable um, kind of auto text generation. And one of the, the new things that they're kind of using that model for trained very specifically though is for a it's a new machine learning software called Codex that effectively allows you to use like natural language to build websites and apps. So you can just say, uh, you know, you could just type into a text field, 
create a website with a navigation pane on the right side and uh, or like a blog or something like that with a navigation pane on the right side and a big graphic on the top or something like that. And it would be able to generate the idea is that it's able to generate the code. And on basic examples, so far it is working. Um, obviously, you know, we, we've, we've kind of ha- seen the hand wringing around auto text generation in terms of what the implications for that would be. But, you know, this is the idea that you can build not just, uh, you know, every publication came out with an essay. This was written by a machine learning algorithm or something like that. What's interesting is, hey, this malware was written by Codex. You know, this, this, uh, this hate-filled website was written by AI or something like that. That's, that's where I see it coming. Is this been now, you know, most technologies kind of obscure complexity over time, right? Um, a lot, most people aren't coding websites in HTML anymore, right? They're using WordPress. They're using uh, a lot of other different tools so that you don't have to know that extreme backend code. Is this just the natural evolution of that? Or is this something where, uh, it, it, does this, um, spike the Ben Weinberg rage index? It definitely spikes the Ben Weinberg <laughs> rage index for a few reasons. And the first is the first thing I thought of when you mentioned this topic to me was Final Cut X. And if you recall, about 10 years ago now, but as a video editor myself, this was enraging on a professional level, um, not just standing on a street corner yelling to people who walk by, but you know, <laughs> you make something that is designed to simplify the learning curve. So it doesn't take a lot of you know professional technical experience. You can focus on the aesthetic and creative side, which mm-hmm. makes sense in theory. But to simplify the learning curve, you necessarily remove a lot of specific functionality or the ability to minutely tweak individual details. So, you know, you can tell it to do something, you know, put a box here or use this color as a drop shadow or whatever, but inevitably you will lose the ability to, you know, ultimately distinguish your website, you know, to do those things that require very specific and technical coding. So by definition, aren't you going to get at least in the early generations, a more bland product. And there are enough, you know, combinations of features and different aesthetics that you will still be able to make something creative. But, you know, inevitably, you're going to want to do something that it can't do or it doesn't understand the language or there's going to be, you know, some technical error that prevents you from distinguishing yourself from all of the other people using this technology that is designed to be simple. And so, first of all, aren't we going to get a lot of, you know, generic crap, certainly at the beginning? Um, And maybe, again, you'll want to stipulate that, oh, we're going to assume the bugs are worked out. But I would argue that, you know, that's an assumption you can't make. Like, again, back to the Final Cut argument, Mm -hmm. you know, they released it under the guise of, you know, it simplifies, you, you know, you don't have to know all this technical stuff to do it. Um. And then, but by definition, there are going to be some problems there. So, you know, generations later, they may work those out, you know, but again, if you took the time to learn this field, you wouldn't face those problems in the first place. And so what is the actual time comparison between using a limited product, waiting for it to improve versus, you know, if you were doing this on any kind of professional level, you would learn it in both the front and back end, and then you wouldn't, the limitation would not be in what the technology can do, but in yourself and something that you control and you can work yourself around those roadblocks. So 
So the, 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 what's interesting to me with that comparison to Final Cut, because again, this is, I, I love your perspective on this. It almost reminds me of this could open the door to the coding version of Fiverr. Whereas like Fiverr at first was like, Hey, I bought motion and now I can do some graphics and you don't, you didn't want to buy motion because it's, you know, 500 or $300 or whatever, how much it costs. So I can build your little splash screen for your YouTube video or for, you know, some, some simple graphics for you and building up a marketplace around that to the point where, you know, what started out as something fairly simplistic and I, you know, uh, having used Fiverr fairly recently, there's a whole spectrum of things you can buy. You can still buy the super basic stuff for five bucks, but the, it, it, there's, there's an incredible amount of sophistication that's on tap there. And, you know, that's kind of what OpenAI is saying is like, we want to multiply the number of people that are programmers. So yes, this may result in, you know, just like there's a billion videos of cats on YouTube. You know, it's like the, the standard uh, thing of, of terrible cell phone videos of cats, but it, by having super basic tools and potentially having platforms to distribute it, that's kind of another, uh, another side of this coin. Um, you can create some very interesting content, although will you ever find it from the signal to the noise? Again, that's more of a platform question, I think down the road, but maybe, uh, I'm going to go, um, I'm going to go buy some URLs for whatever the uh, coding version of Fiverr is probably just Fiverr actually, now that I think about it. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, that I super interesting, uh, perspective on that, but, uh, thank you for, uh, for your insight. Keen, well, then, well, you're welcome. And of course I can't leave you without <laughs> presenting another dystopian cynical view. And yes. that is really just, again, they want to perfect this platform for speech to instruction. And again, I could see some useful, applications for this down the road, you know, you could have, for example, a brilliant medical mind who isn't physically able to perform, you know, whatever operation or something like that, you know, ultimately, like, is this just supposed to be a coding thing? Like, isn't this more of like proving the technology works and that it can be rolled out to the rest of our universe? And again, you can sit in a dark room with your glasses on and not have to do anything and you'll just give instructions to somebody uh, to do something out in the real world to build something or to perform some action. And, you know, you won't have to do it physically. You won't have to learn how to do it. You won't have to know anything about it. Um, and then at the same time, the company powering this knows everybody's thoughts and instructions. And they're, I can't imagine they aren't also mining, you know, like, from a design standpoint, everybody wants like, you know, solid colors on like these backgrounds, you know, whatever. And, you know, however many people ask for that, now they've got like, oh, this is the latest thing in design. And then they can automate something else and steal your data like that. Or, you know, the next app designer will use that, you know, in your app and make you feel like you're getting more, you know, functionality or it's a, a smoother experience for you. So, you know, ultimately I have to think this is just a way for them to collect our preferences that they can then use against us. Well, and there's already been a kerfuffle about what OpenAI is doing kind of across a, a couple different aspects where they're, the way they train codecs is they use the GPT-3 model, but they scraped a bunch of open source code. Now this is code that by license you are allowed to use, edit, you know, uh, depending, you know, the, the terms kind of vary per, per license, stuff like that. But uh, some people are saying, you know, this is an abuse of 
open source code to be able to effectively train something that can create an infinite amount of code that, oh, by the way, you're profiting off of and not necessarily contributing, definitely not contributing back into the greater ecosystem. So that uh, is kind of the flip side, I think, uh, of the point you were making uh, there, Ben. So kind of already uh, uh, potentially causing some problems uh, in how open source might work in the future, too. All right. Well, I think that just about brings us to this, the end of this uh, this pilot edition of Ask a Luddite. Ben, thank you so much for for joining us. It was it was truly a, a journey into the heart of terror around technology. Thank you very much, and I can't wait to see what uh, topics you'll throw at me that I can be cynical about in the future. So, Ben, if uh, people want to find you uh, online, where can they? Is there anywhere I can tell them to send them to? Um, I, my company is Sandwich Post Production for all your media post production needs. at sandwichpostproduction dot uh, as you can imagine, of a lot of it, I am not on the social, so you cannot reach me, and that is by design. People have tried to put you on the socials, and unsuccessfully, I would like correct. to correct. That is so, correct. There, there was an incident. All right. Well, uh, Daily Tech News Show will be back next week, and hopefully we can bring you some more Ask a Luddites. If you enjoyed the show, please uh, send us an email, feedback at dailytechnewsshow.com. Uh, until the next time we meet, uh, I'm Rich Straffolino. I'm Ben Weinberg. And we're reminding you to have a super sparkly day. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.